Good evening, everyone. My name is Wally. I'm codependent. And I'm going to see if I can say the word awareness even more than Judith did. <laughs> uh, she sent me an email a couple of days ago that I didn't get until yesterday, right before I left. And we were just chatting about speaking and this whole thing about, you know, have you given any thought to the keeping it to the theme of the convention? So I sent her back an email, which she has not received yet, which said, um that I'd love to talk to you about this when I see you at the convention and if I if you don't get this before you leave for the convention I just wanted you to know that you were a complete inspiration to me when you spoke on Saturday night <laughs> so that actually still holds thank you very much <laughs> um, and I've thought about awareness a lot and um, how it's changed for me as a result of coming to recovery <sighs> to give you the background I'm one of seven children I'm 32 years old I was born in the Bronx um, and what I've learned from family parties and family funerals, which is where I, I learned a lot about my family at funerals, and I just realized that right now as I said that, most of what I know about my family was learned at funerals, because every other time we were, everything was okay and everything was great, and funerals were the one time where people would be even mildly honest. Um, I'm also a recovering alcoholic. My family's full of them, and the pattern in my family is control. There's a very long history of males stopping drinking at the demand of a significant other for decades, um, and being incredibly miserable, incredibly angry, and um, but living, God damn it. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> that is what I learned in my family: is you just live, God damn it, and um, everything had a God damn it after it. Um, when we were doing, um, at last year's conference, we were doing the pre-conference approval on the affirmations booklet, and at two in the morning, we were reading affirmations to each other in the lounge, and we got punchy and started ending every affirmation with comma, damn it. Um, but that part wasn't approved. So, um, so when I came to CODA, one of the big awarenesses I had was that I knew nothing about my childhood. Um, everything I'm about to tell you, I learned because I came and because I opened myself up to reliving that um, and feeling the pain, which is when I started to remember the events. Um, my mother had a nervous breakdown, and I didn't know what a nervous breakdown was. We just knew that she had one. Um, what happened was she tried to kill herself. Um, went into the hospital. She was um, hooked on amphetamines. We had an uncle who was a doctor. And amphetamines were very in, and no one knew they were addictive, so he was prescribing for the whole family. And... Um, <laughs> And um, so she was out drinking and doing amphetamines to watch the three kids during the day and had this breakdown and was hospitalized and came out of treatment and I was conceived. And I believe I was conceived in an effort to save their marriage. There are seven of us, so their marriage had some problems. Um, so. We're taping this, aren't we? <laughs> so... Um, Growing up was is all is still some of it is still a blur. I have a, I'm a control freak and I am very visual. I can tell you the name of every teacher I have, the classroom where I sat, and what it looks like, except for 1972, um, second grade. No, clue, still no clue why. It's just gone, and that's what my life was like. And when it came to recovery, when people started talking about their childhood, I didn't know what they were. I knew what they were talking about. I didn't think I had one. I was very close to my mother, and. She said that changed when she brought my brother home a year and two and a half months later and that I slid off her lap and wouldn't speak to her. And I've thought about that because me and my brother, my next youngest brother, have been competing for my parents' love our entire life. And what I realized a couple of years ago was that we each thought the other one got more. And um, 
have had this love-hate relationship going on for my entire life. My memories really start in 1969 when we moved up to Westchester County and built the house and my father got a second job to pay for it and they were fighting and um, they were screaming and yelling. He was never home. There was a lot of tension and I learned to be aware of what other people were thinking and feeling. I knew when he was upset. I knew when to be quiet. I knew when I could talk. I knew when I couldn't talk. He usually couldn't talk, so I didn't and did my best to stay invisible. Around this time also, my mother switched religions. Um, she converted and became a Jehovah's Witness. And there was a six-month fight between the two of them that my father lost because he wasn't a churchgoer and got tired of driving us to church, and all of the kids became Jehovah's Witnesses by default. Um, at this same time, I started school, and I was a mess. I was <laughs> away from my mother, away from my family, at, in this new environment with these new people in this new town. I was born in the Bronx, and now there were trees and fields and cows and... And then there was this whole other set of religious beliefs that came to school with me that I couldn't pledge the flag and had to leave the room whenever there was a birthday or a holiday. And there was always focus on me, and it was never good because the kids didn't understand and they weren't always polite about it. And I hated every minute of it. Every year, first day of school, was just like the worst experience of my life. And as much as I didn't like school, I cried the last day of school every year because I had to spend the summer at home. Um, my mother and I... We're very close, and that lasted for a long time. The clinical term is cross-generational bonding. What it means is that essentially I was her husband. My father wasn't home, and she started confiding in me, and I got off on that. Um, and I knew a lot of stuff that I should not have known as a 7- to 12-year-old boy. And what I learned from that is that my, my problems were completely insignificant. You know, I was a little insecure, but we were going to lose the house. And in the grand scheme of things, those two things didn't balance, so I stopped having problems. Around this time, I also started bedwetting and wondered what was wrong with me. And I was sharing at a CODA meeting, probably two or three years at a CODA, I made the connection, gee, I wonder why I wet my bed. I never thought about that. Because if my mother was in a good mood, she was caring and supportive about it, and if she wasn't in a good mood, she wasn't. And I learned to hide it, and I learned to be ashamed of it. Um, and made one attempt to get help, and it was rebuffed by my parents, I guess, I don't know why. And... Um, so hid that for years and was never going to talk about it. Oh, well. So, <laughs> the benefit to this that I thought was that I had a lot of power, um, but it alienated me from my siblings. My father was a rageaholic who was physically and emotionally abusive, but not to me because um, he would not touch me unless he had her permission. And I grew up feeling guilty and wondering what was wrong with me because I wasn't getting hit. And my brothers and sisters were getting hit, and they knew it, and I was different. And at some level, I thought they hated me, too, because I wasn't getting as abused as everybody else in the house. So this is my family life. I, I once told my AA story, and um, someone shared after I was done speaking that well, by the time I had my first drink, I needed one. Um, <laughs> and that's how I felt. I mean, I knew I was completely gonzo and completely externally focused and very, 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 very hypervigilantly aware of what was going on around me, and that was it. I knew nothing about me. If you asked me what my favorite color was, I couldn't give you an answer. For three years into recovery, I couldn't go to Blockbuster Video with another person because it, emo it was emotional hell. <laughs> no, I, well, what movie do you want to watch? <laughs> I really don't care. Um, and that's what I carried through, is everybody else is more important than me. And I learned to be witty, entertaining, charming, and listen to my mother for hours on end and fix her and write budgets, never taking into account the fact that my mother's a compulsive spender. 
So none of the budgets ever worked because we were, again, my family, we never addressed the core problem. We just talked around it and everybody worked around it and you just did triple time to try to maintain status quo. That's my childhood. Um, I isolated. I didn't fit in with kids my age. They didn't know anything about mortgages. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> I couldn't relate and again thought there was something wrong with me. Um, I was taught to hate my sex. I was taught my parents, my parents love each other now and that was a really big gift for me to become aware of because I grew up knowing that they didn't love each other, knowing that my mother's religion forbade um, divorce except on the grounds of adultery which neither one of them was doing. And so I grew up with this we're all stuck together attitude. And uh, that's affected my view of relationships. My view when I went to college was you graduate from college, get a job, get a wife, get a house, and live happily ever after. God damn it. Um, and that's it. And I have spent my entire life trying to get to this point where I feel I have arrived, I have what I need to have, and that's the end of life. You just live the next 70 years <laughs> till it's time to die. And that's what my family does, and that's what I learned. I went to college not knowing how I got there. I, I reacted to things, and I was accepted to an Ivy League school, and my parents dropped me off. And I remember when they drove away, <laughs> having this very clear thought of, how did I get here? Um, I had no living skills, as independent as I was having worked from the age of 11 and stuff like that. I had no idea how to live and didn't know how I got there because I just went along with life until I had to make an A or B decision and then chose which one I thought was best and went with it. But never gave any thought to what I wanted to do, what I wanted to be. There was never a me in it. I was completely unaware. It was just, this is what my guidance counselor said to do. This is what my teacher said to do. This is what this one said to do. So I did it and here I am at an Ivy League university majoring in hotel restaurant management because when I was 15 I started working at a restaurant. So obviously that's my lifetime career. Um, <laughs> And that's how I thought, and that's how I thought until very, very recently. Again, you get a job, and you live your life, and you don't change anything. And it doesn't matter how miserable you are, that's not important. You just do it. So I dropped out of college, partially because I was having a little problem with alcoholism. The other part of that really is... <laughs> the other part of that, and the biggest part of that, and the biggest part of my drinking was because I knew that if I graduated from college that it would be time to buy a suit, buy a tie, get a wife, get a house, stop drinking, and get my life entirely in order and live miserably for the next 70 years until I die. And that's exactly what I was setting up for myself. Um, never, again, I never thought about what I wanted. It wasn't an option. There was no God. Well, there was a God, and he was really, really, really pissed at me. And um, someday, and I, I grew up believing that I was going to be killed, that God was going to kill me when I was 13, um, and spent the next 12 years firmly believing that at some point God was going to slaughter me because of what I was doing and what I wasn't doing. I was taught by my religion that I had this um, duty because of the knowledge that I had. Um, and I wasn't living up to that duty because it was never my religion, it was my mother's religion. And that was a really big one for me to break from. So I dropped out of college, worked, drank, did drugs. Um, and in 1989 got sober through a series of events that aren't really significant, important at this time. And I, got so, I started going to AA meetings not because I was an alcoholic, but because I needed to look good for the judge and keep a roof over my head and, you know, get rid of the trouble that was in my life. So I went. And they say the program will get you if you don't get the program, and that's what happened with me. And um, when I committed to AA, 
I did it like I did everything else in my life. I was going to do it better and faster and perfectly. And I set about doing that, um, which isn't necessarily a bad thing because it means I spoke to a lot of people, did a lot of step work, went to a lot of meetings, and did a lot of sharing. And when I was two years sober, I was miserable, and I knew that there was something wrong. And I was sharing this this afternoon. I was working what on the surface was the picture-perfect AA program. Name a suggestion. I was doing it or had done it. Name something to do in service for your recovery, and I was doing it. And I was completely miserable. And God put someone in my life that I hadn't seen in a year and a half who was going to CODA. And we had a dinner date where someone got honest with me for the first time in my life. And I don't remember to this day what she said. I have no idea what she said. But that conversation changed my life. And um, <laughs> I really would someday like to know what she said. But <laughs> it was really profound and meant a lot to me. And... Um, <laughs> And the profound part of it was that it wasn't what she was saying. It was that she was caring and she was loving and she was reaching out and she saw through my bullshit and no one had ever seen. No one had ever seen through my bullshit or had the courage to say that they saw through my bullshit. And she said it in a restaurant. Um, and it's the one time in my life that I've come really close to losing my composure in a restaurant. Up until then, I hadn't cried for 13 years. And yes, I was counting. Um, so I committed to CODA. Committed to doing step work, I switched sponsors. He asked me where I was with the steps, and my answer was essentially finished, thank you. And, um, <laughs> and he asked me to do a written first step and said, I'm sensing a little resistance. And I said, no, you're not. You're sensing rage. How dare you ask me to do a written first step? Don't you know, don't you know who I am? I will never forget that story because, again, it was a profound moment in my life that I didn't realize till later because that night after I lightened up and laughed at myself, I got on my knees for the first time in my life um, and I realized I needed help and realized that I was trapped by my own ego. I was in an AA environment where people looked up to me, people respected me, and to me that meant that I couldn't have any problems and I couldn't be a human being and that I had to just be perfect and be the AA poster child and I did a damn good job at it and I almost drank. Um, actually, I probably wouldn't have drank. I probably would have been a really miserable old-timer, and I don't want to do that either. <laughs> so um, I committed to CODA, and I started sharing, and it was ugly. Um, <laughs> it was really bad. Because as I was saying it, I knew. I'm like, oh, God. It was like tattling on myself. What was coming out of my mouth was hateful and, and egotistical and arrogant, and I knew it, and I said it anyway. And people would come up to me after meetings and tell me how they felt about my sharing, and I got pissed off. And, um, but what happened was I became a human being, and we kept talking about it. And I would go to therapy and scream and yell, and this is, can you believe what this person said to me? But a funny thing happened. I started taking suggestions, and what was consistently happening was I would be in therapy telling my therapist this really new revelation I had, and she'd look over her clipboard and say, oh, and I've never said that. <laughs> but what... What CODA gave me was living it. Um, my latest, my last therapist was very big into experiential therapy, that I need to experience stuff and relearn stuff, that sitting around and talking about it is great, but I need to have the experience. And that's what CODA gave me is awareness is wonderful, but I don't get awareness in a vacuum. The awarenesses I do usually aren't very healthy. Um, and I need other people, a sponsor, a therapist, and you guys, because um, I still sometimes think that I need to be perfect that I need to do this, that I need to do that. And fortunately, that's passed a lot, and it isn't as intense. It still comes up. Um, but CODA has given me the ability to look at my past, take a very long, hard look at my past, 
learn from that and realize that I'm not responsible for what happened to me, but I am responsible for living differently from today forward, one day at a time. Um, and I'm just eternally grateful. I look around me at my family and see what my future could have been without CODA, even as a sober adult male. Um, and that's the scariest part of all is I could still be sober and really, really miserable. Um, so I went back, I was working, I was managing restaurants when I came to Coda, and with the help of you all, I went back to school and started majoring in human resource management because it was safe and um, took an acting class. And so I auditioned for the school play, which was a chorus line, and I don't sing or dance, but was cast. And um, <laughs> I was sitting in my office at IBM where I was designing a recruiting program for a bunch of their executives and suddenly had an awareness, which is, I don't want to do this for the next 20 years. <laughs> and again, that's a gift of recovery. There have been 50 stopping points since I came to CODA, all of which would have been completely comfortable, completely okay, and would have been validated by most of the people I talked to about, but it's not the best for me. Uh, there's a line in the traditions, the long form of the traditions in AA, that says sometimes the good is the enemy of the best. And what I've been consistently challenged to do in CODA is what is best you know my life is really really good and if I didn't grow anymore I would be really happy but that's not what I came here for I didn't come here to settle for what's good I didn't come here to settle for what's work what will work I didn't settle, didn't come here to settle for 401k and paid vacations and Social Security um, I came here because I want to be happy I came here because I want to live differently than what I saw growing up I came here because I want to experience life um, one of the big turning points in my AA recovery was when my AA sponsor, who doesn't go to CODA, and I'll leave it at that, shared at a meeting that all he wanted out of AA was to be reasonably happy. And I got enraged. We had a fight. I didn't come here to be reasonably happy. That's not why I came here, and that's not what I want. I want to be happy, joyous, and free, and that's all I'm settling for. <laughs> and um, by the grace of God, I'm, getting able, I'm being able to live that. And... Um, the one thing that I thought about driving up here yesterday in the storm was um, my latest series in my own personal awareness is that um, I switched my major at college, by the way, after this whole chorus line thing and became a theater major and have appeared in plays. I keep thinking that I'm not an actor and I just appeared in Scotland at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival <laughs> in a play that got four star reviews, but I'm not an actor. <laughs> Um, I'm studying to be one, maybe I'll be one, and I get really wishy-washy talking about it because it's really, really risky. Um, I have to be vulnerable, I have to take huge emotional risks, and I have to live with a ton of faith because there's no career I can think of that's less secure than acting. Um, and that goes against everything, every fiber of my being, that goes against everything I was born, bred, and raised to believe, and it's what I very much want to do. And um, since I graduated from college, I've been pursuing jobs in theater management because I'm good at it, and it's safe. And um, I just went on a job, I went on a job interview with Norwegian Cruise Lines last week and had, again had that awareness. She said, where's your love? And I gave her the stock answer that has been sounding okay to me, and it didn't sound okay to me. And I realized I want to study acting, and it means that I need to do some more learning. I need to do some more work. I need to, I need to live with God one day at a time because there's no other way I can do this because um, I'm... <laughs> When I choose to think I need to do it my way, I get really scared really fast. Um, when I'm recovery-centered and God-focused, what I remember is that I have been very lovingly carried this far, and, and <laughs> I'm not quite ready to stop yet.
So um, I'm just, recovery is just the wildest thing that's ever happened to me. And on a closing note, and I shared this when I spoke in New York too, I'm, I'm at one of those places where I thought I would have all the answers and be all together and be a finished product and be done, thank you. And um, everyone would love me and respect me and da 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 And none of that's true. Well, a lot of that's true, but not for the reasons I thought it was. <laughs> and what I learned more and more is that it's not about my being perfect or, or fixing things or having the answer. It's about my being me. And I have the ability, I love what you said before, because um, I went through the same thing with, you know, I was a caretaker, so I can't do service, and needed to work with a sponsor and talk to a therapist and figure out when it's right for me to give service and when it isn't right for me to give service. And But to serve, because my first impulse is, no, I don't want to do that, or, yes, I'll do everything. And, you know, I needed to have the experience of learning those boundaries by jumping in and doing too much or doing too little. And I'm in a place where I'm really, really grateful to be of service and really, really grateful for what I get to learn as opposed to, my old view of where I am now, which is be where I don't need to learn anymore. That's, that's the biggest gift of this program is that I just need to be me. Um, titles don't matter. Time and recovery doesn't matter. What I do for a living doesn't matter. It's I need to be me. And that's been the challenge of coming here is, you know, where's Wally in all of this? Because I lose him really quickly. But fortunately now, less and less. So that's all I have to share. Thank you all for listening.